morning, everyone. I'm going to be reading the scripture for this morning. Um, the scripture from today comes from Ezekiel chapter 36. We'll be reading verses 19 through the end of the chapter. This can be found on page 1314, 1314 of the Pew Bible. Ezekiel 36 from verse 19. I dispersed them among the nations, and they were scattered through the countries. I judged them according to their conduct and their actions. And wherever I went among them, the nations, they profaned my holy name. For it was said of them, these are the Lord's people, and yet they had to leave his land. I had concern for my holy name, which the people of Israel profaned among the nations where they had gone. Therefore, say to the Israelites, this is what the sovereign Lord says. It is not for your sake, people of Israel, that I'm going to do these things, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you have gone. I will show the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, the name you have profaned among them. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the sovereign Lord, when I am proved holy through you before their eyes. For I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from your, all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Then you will live in the land I gave your ancestors. You will be my people and I will be your God. I will save you from all your uncleanness. I will call for all the grain and make it plentiful and will not bring famine upon you. I will increase the fruit of the trees and the crops of the field so that you will no longer suffer disgrace among the nations because of famine. Then you will remember your evil ways and wicked deeds and you will loathe yourselves for your sins and detestable practices. I want you to know that I am not doing this for your sake, declares the sovereign Lord. Be ashamed and disgraced for your conduct, people of Israel. This is what the sovereign Lord says. On the day I cleanse you from all your sins, I will resettle your towns and the ruins will be rebuilt. The desolate land will be cultivated instead of lying desolate in the sight of all those who pass it. They will say, this land was laid waste, has become like a garden of Eden. The cities that were lying in ruins, desolate and destroyed, are now fortified and inhabited. Then the nations around you will remain, well, that you, around you that remain, will know that I, the Lord, have rebuilt what was destroyed and have replanted what was desolate. I, the Lord, have spoken and will do it. This is what the sovereign Lord says. Once again, I will yield to Israel's plea and do this for them. I will make their people as numerous as sheep, as numerous as the flocks for offerings at Jerusalem during her appointed festivals. So will the ruined cities be filled with flocks of people. Then they will know that I am the Lord. It's the word of the Lord written for his people. Thanks, Jimmy. Now it's time for the pastoral announcements. See how that's slick that they split those up, right? Um, I want to say a little bit about—I um, I said a few weeks ago that we were—the elders were praying about purchasing a building, right? We were looking at purchasing uh, the, an empty elementary school in Lodi that has 56,000 square feet. It's an enormous ministry opportunity. Um, after going through all the, 
all the, the numbers and all of that, the project went from like two and a half million to three and a half million to, it ended up at like 5.2 million. And when it was like, okay, how much money do we have to sink into this an asset to run this place after say three years? It was like $2 million. And we were like, what are the opportunity costs of that? And as we were trying to strategize how God would want us to spend whatever asset we have together to work for his kingdom, we just felt like that was probably not the right opportunity at this price at least. And so we are not planning on purchasing that building. But I do want you, the reason I'm telling you that, I told you before, I'm telling you this now, is because I want you to know that, I, I, was, with a, I was with a pastor yesterday, we were having lunch in Chicago, and he had a stroke a few years ago, and he thought he was dying, but he was also kind of loopy because he was having a stroke. And he, at first he was like, I think I'm dying. And then he's like, oh, that's kind of weird. And then he was like, well, I'm going to miss my kids and my grandkids. My kids growing up, my grandkids. That stinks. And then he said the next thought that came into his head was, you know, you really played it safe. You kept your powder dry, you know? And he's like, when I recovered from my stroke and I remembered that that was my thought when I thought I was going to die, he said it, it kind of changed how I wanted to spend the rest of my life, fruitful life. He was like 58 at the time. And um, I was like, oh, yeah, I'm a son of an immigrant. I play it safe. I want you to know that, like, we, our elders believe, and I believe, that, like, we, we really can't. There's not a lot of churches that are, that are growing, that are strong, that have people ambitious for the gospel, for helping others and leading people to Christ. And a lot of churches are really struggling. A lot of pastors are really struggling. And I believe that we have to steward what we've been given, partly financially, but partly, one of the things I've told our elders, and it's something I'm hoping to get, we can, we can cross this in the, over the next two years or so is, I mean, there's got to be like two billion in human capital in this church. You know, like, like if you, we went through every single person in every one of these pews, everything that you can do, everything that you're good at, everything that you know, every experience that you've had, and we could really order that and connect that with the real needs in this world, the amount of money we have would be trivial compared to the impact of the, of the capital, the, the investable um, wealth that's inside of each of you. Does that make sense? And our relationships, what we, what we can do together, our social capital. And that needs to get unleashed, and I haven't quite figured out how to do that well as a pastor yet here, beyond where we're at right now. And I think that that's, when I think of the next capital campaign I'd want to do, I would much rather be able to do that somehow than money, you know. Um, so anyway, uh, and then uh, lastly, um, there's, we have job openings in communications and in youth. Um, if you're crazy enough to be a youth pastor, we'll talk to you. Um, but both of those departments are also open for more volunteering, and that's a great way um, to really serve the church. If, you, if you've got skills in um, graphics, podcasting, editing, photography, videography, all that kind of stuff, um, we'd love to, love to help you use those gifts, that, that capital that you have for the church in our ministry. Okay, let's dive in. Let's go to the second slide. We, we lost the clicker, so Lindsay and I are going to be on a wavelength here. Sometimes people like to distinguish between religion and philosophies and spiritualities. And I, I'm just going to be real honest with you. I don't have any patience for that. I think it's just ways where people don't want to deal with problems and think through things, right? Like, so, so I want to say that what you believe is stupid, what I believe is fun, so I'll call what you believe a religion, what I believe is spirituality. Or I want to be able to, like, indoctrinate children in a public setting, so I'll call what I think, which is just as religious as what you think a philosophy and what you think a religion. So you can't say anything, but I can say whatever I want. Okay? I just, that's all just a bunch of nonsense. I don't have any patience for it at all. Okay? We all believe a set of beliefs that order our lives. We, and you can call it spirituality if you want. You can call it religion if you want. You can call it philosophy if you want. But, but um, it essentially, like, 
it, it tells us certain things. Like, like, if you, like what, what you believe should have a law built into it. Something that tells you whether you're a good person or a bad person. If your philosophy, spirituality, or religion doesn't have that, you've got a bad spirituality, philosophy, or religion. Every human being psychologically needs to know whether they're a good person or a bad person. We have an internal need to know it. Right? And, and most spiritualities, philosophies, and religions in the world provide that. And that's a good thing, not a bad thing. Right? It's also advice. Like, there's a lot of stuff that's not like profoundly moral, like I need to tell you what to do, but it's kind of like, look, if you do this, things are going to go better. And if you do that, things are going to go worse. You know, advice, like the Bible would call that wisdom, right? There's tons of religions, philosophies, and, and spiritualities in the world that give people advice. And, and like some of that advice is, is really good, you know? And then there's what I'm just going to call tapping, which is like, you know, like tapping into something. Like there's like a God spirit. There's like a transcendent feeling. There's like a what God is, God's spirit is out there. And like, there's something more for you to tap into, right? And as a human being, you need to tap into something bigger than yourself, whether it's general atheistic transcendence and meditation or like some kind of vague spirituality of the God spirit out there, or whether it is the Holy Spirit of God given through a relationship with Jesus Christ. Like you need to tap into something human, you know? And then fourth is story that like, we think that we think like, like really clear sets of thoughts systematically, but we don't. We, ne we think in terms of the narrative that we're a part of, a story that gives our life definition. It gives us like where we've been, where we're going, what's happening, what it means. And it gives us a sense of identity, of origin, of destiny, of meaning and morality. And it like centers our life. And, and, and frankly, especially in times like right now where things are kind of like loopy in terms of how society's working right now. I mean, that like keeps us from like falling into depressions and like crazy anxiety and getting in fights with people we could, we could otherwise get along with. And listen, even if your religion is false, it better have at least those four things that, that are like somewhat helpful, right? And listen, Christianity has all those things, okay? They're good. And other religions and philosophies and theologies or whatever have those things, and they're not all bad. But one of the things that we have to recognize, and it's so critical to understand as people, is that what Christian faith also teaches is without an additional component that exists in no other philosophy, religion, or spirituality, these cannot cure what's really wrong with human beings. They cannot solve the human condition. They certainly can't bring world peace. Right? Um, if you, if you can think about it this way, if you go to the next slide. Um, all four of these things, in a way, are external things that, that are like advice. They, they help us figure out what to do. They tell us what we are. But, but none of them inherently deal with what Scripture teaches is the actual real problem with human beings, right? So I have apple trees and cherry trees at my house, and I have to prune them every year. And I do that like I'm guiding them. I'm correcting them. I'm trying to make them wise, right? And, it, and so I'm cutting back on them. I'm doing something in the tree, but it, and, it, and the idea it is, is it will outgrow it. It'll help it, right? But you see, when, when we get to Ezekiel, we've, getting all, we've come all the way through the Old Testament as readers of the Bible then at this point. And we're through this like really long experiment. And what we find out is that none of that stuff actually works with human beings, right? Like we've had an experiment now. It's like 1,500 years of an experiment. And it stinks. God has given them advice. He's given them laws. 
He's given them something to tap into. He's even given them mechanisms for forgiveness and justification. He's given them all kinds of things. He's given them so much. And here, here's where we are. Exile, destruction, loss, disgrace, defilement. It's like they're lying in a grave and shovels of dirt are getting thrown on their face and they, now they can't see any more light and now it's getting hard to breathe. There's no hope. Why don't you go to the next slide? One of the things that I think is really great about this passage and the succeeding passages here in Ezekiel is that um, it gives us a sense, a beginning of the sense of what's going to happen in the New Testament and what's going to happen with Christ and what's going to happen with the rebuilding of Israel before that, that God's salvation is, was way deeper and way wider than we've bargained for. Like everybody, most human beings have some sense of like what they really want from God or what they really want from their spirituality, what they really want from their philosophy. And it's essentially idolatry. They don't want something that's completely whole, that takes hold of them and pulls them into something they don't get to define or control. They don't want to be, they don't want to be a slave to anything. That's the fear, right? And so they have like this kind of like, well, you know, if God made my life better, if I knew I was a good person and I got some good advice and I was able to tap into something bigger than myself and I had like some kind of story that ordered my life, that would help me live my life. I could make my life what I wanted it to be. That would be really great, right? And what Scripture teaches is like, that's, that's really not what Yahweh, the God of Israel, the one who is the sovereign Lord, is actually doing in the earth. It's not what he's doing widely and it's not what he's doing deeply. And you might be like, well, Nick, I see that there's like theological points to this, but is this really going to be practical for me? And the answer is, everything that's true is practical for you, right? But non-condescendingly, one of the reasons why it's so important is because what sustains us in all the, the moment, the practical moments of our lives, when we're doing something besides just being like animals reacting, when we're being something bigger than that, it's awe. It's, it's being captured by the beauty of the truth of God that holds us and sustains us. And when you see the depth and the breadth of the beauty of the salvation of God, it's like that first time when you go scuba diving in 200 feet of water and you look down and you can see 100 feet and you see things moving around and you, see, you realize how little you are in this. Or when you get out on something where you can see for miles and miles and miles in directions and the sky is bigger than you've ever seen. You're just driving through Montana and you can hardly take it, right? It's just in like— if we can recognize something big, way bigger than us that's true, and if we're willing to pay attention enough for it to affect us, God will produce in us the awe that will sustain us. Okay, so let, let me break this down into two parts. The first one is that God's salvation is deeper than we bargained for. Go ahead, the next one. Think about this for a second. What do we actually learn from the entirety of the Old Testament? What do we learn from all the travails and all the difficulties and all the history of the people of Israel? Do we learn that, like, Jews are bad? Right? Like, there were was, there was some Western and Eastern Europeans, like, in the Middle Ages, that, like, that, they thought that was, like, a big lesson. No, the Jews in the Bible are typical human beings, right? They're just like us, right? God just picked a group of people who's just like everybody else, right, and said, right? He does say about the Jews, like, you're not special, like, I didn't pick the wisest or the biggest or the best people. I picked you because I loved you. I decided I had to set my affection on you, right? Which is, which is good because most of us aren't the biggest or the best people. In fact, it says that in 1 Corinthians of the people who got saved in Corinth. You know, you weren't, the, you weren't the smartest or the best or the richest. But God loved you, right? So you get this history, and, and, and what God seems to be showing by the time you get to Ezekiel is 
don't you see this was an experiment in religion and spirituality and philosophy? Don't you see? Like, we did, I did everything for them. Literally everything. Like, I gave them a law. I told them it was good or bad. I revealed it to them in lots of different ways. I, I showed them in the story. I showed them in life. I, I gave them specific commandments. I like, connected it to like these huge miraculous events showing that I was with them. I literally showed them a pillar of fire in the, in the night and a pillar of smoke in the day. I, like, I, did, I did all of that, and then I gave them a story that they were a part of. They had, to, they had to celebrate the Exodus every year in the Passover, and I, I gave them like different celebrations during the year, so they always knew what story they were a part of. And then I gave them advice. There was so much wisdom in all the stories and all, and literally I gave them a book of wisdom, the Proverbs, and I gave them the wisest king ever who wasn't very wise because he didn't pay attention to the wisdom. Right? And he, and he said, I gave them something to tap into. It's not like there was no spirituality. Like, like, I was grand to them. I was the Lord. I was big enough that they, if they would have paid attention, they would have been caught up into the transcendence of being God's people, and it would have expanded them creatively and psychologically and in their consciousness. They would have seen the bigger existence they were part of, and it would have affected them really deeply. But they didn't care. I gave them a law, and they didn't do it. I gave them advice, and they didn't take it. I gave them a spirituality, and they didn't pay attention to it. And I gave them a story, and they didn't locate themselves in it. They just didn't do it. In fact, there's a point where he says, when I gave you the law, you didn't want to do it so much that you rejected it and did the opposite so that the good things I did for you didn't just not save you, they actually made you worse. It's like, it's like a kid grows up and they have like a good parent, they decide that their parent stinks. And so they decide, well, I'm just going to be as, as different than my good, wise parent as I possibly can be. And they're like wrecking their lives all the more because they just want to live in contrast to their stupid good parents so much, you know? And you're like, oh my gosh, you're just going to kill yourself. And that's what God says the Israelites were doing. They had everything that a philosophy, a spirituality, or religion should have. And it made them worse rather than better. Right? I think one of the reasons why I'm saying it this way is because um, Christians, especially like Bible-believing Christians, like in the, in the revivalist tradition, people who are evangelical in the sense that we believe in the evangel, that we have a message to tell others that, that they can believe in and they must believe to be saved, right? And sometimes we're like, well, you know, we, we, you know, we have the way. We know the way. And, here, and here's the thing. We've got to be really careful about this because it's true. And also, remember, God's religion failed. Do you understand? Like the real one, like the God of Israel, Yahweh God, the sovereign Lord, made a religion, philosophy, and a spirituality, and it failed. And he did that apparently on purpose. Because there's—apparently there, there's no other way to teach us this. Because the thing he's going to teach in the New Testament that he begins to teach in this passage is a— is so foundational that if you don't get it in the deepest possible way, and if it doesn't reside as the heart of everything else, how we receive his law and his story and his spirituality and his advice, we're going to end up like the Israelites. And so is everyone else. Right? It says in Galatians 21, Paul says, listen, if, if salvation or righteousness could have been had through the law, then Christ died for nothing. 
Right? When Jesus said in the Garden of Gethsemane, Father, if there's, if there's another way, let this cup pass from me. Like, if there's another way besides whatever God was doing in the death and resurrection of Christ, we should do that. Like, God gave his only begotten son to the cross. Right? The, it mitigates against the idea that there's like an alternative. There's no alternative. And it's not because all these other mechanisms of religion and spirituality aren't good. They're all good. But they can't do it. They can't cure the hollowed out tree. They can only prune back the branches of the tree that might still have some leaves and a little bit of fruit, but that's already dead. Go ahead, the next one. And so, one of the things we have to recognize is that, like, whether in the Bible or outside of the Bible, whether there's great advice or great examples or a compelling story or perfect laws or noble incentives or empathic love, None of that can make us good. None of that can save us. None of that can really redeem us, right? Augustine said in one of his sermons, he says, um, there is a good that can make good, and there is a good with which you can do good, and they are not the same thing. In that sermon, he was saying, it's only God can make you good, but you have money, and you could give it to the poor. You have a good that with, with which you could do good, your money, but your money can't make you good. Your money is more liable to make you evil. There's only one thing that can make you good from evil, and that's God. Go ahead, the next one. What God gets to, finally, in this passage that he says most explicitly, is that there is a problem within the human heart that Romans 7 calls our wretchedness, and Ezekiel 36 calls um, a, a heart of stone, which is that we are both morally unwilling and virtuously, or in terms of strength, incapable of doing the good. We won't do it. How do you help somebody who won't be helped? Right? I remember being an EMT and trying to help like drunk people who had hurt themselves, who had probably taken some ecstasy and were going crazy. Like, it's very hard to help somebody who's flailing, thrashing, trying to bite you, trying to tear your skin off with their fingernails, even if you've got three or four or five people trying to help them. It doesn't work, right? And so what God says is, he says, here's what, here's what it finally comes down to is this. He says, I'm going to have to supernaturally, in an utterly spiritual way that is, that, that is, can, can be copied by nothing else in human creation. I have to take out your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. You literally need a spiritual heart transplant. From the bottom up, at the very core of you, a miracle has to happen. Right? That we call, in, in Christian spirituality, we call it regeneration. The idea that, um, God, in a singular act of his own energy and power, does something in our heart at the core of the human problem to make us alive spiritually, capable of desiring the good, and willing to do the good. Right? In the New Testament, this is called the new birth. The, the word regeneration is only used twice in the New Testament. It's used once just, re just referring to the return of Jesus and the restoration of all things. There's a place in Matthew where that's called the regeneration. And no translator translates it that way because they think that's a weird translation to translate it based on what it says. Um, same reason why in the, in the passage this morning, it's always in, in the New Bible, it's the people of Israel. In the text, it's the house of Israel is the word that's used. But you, of course, you couldn't understand that, that the house of Israel means the people of Israel. So we'll just translate it as something else, right? It's, I just don't, don't get that. I'm like, people aren't that dumb. Probably, you know. Um, certainly you aren't. <laughs> 
you can see that God's, God's solution is this restorative healing operation of a heart transplant rather than advice. You can, you can see this in the New Testament in Titus 3, verses 3 to 7. It says this, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works, that we, works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. And by, and here's the line, the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Right? Now, you can see um, washing and regeneration are close to each other. The word regeneration is really the putting together of the word back or to go back, and to be born or make alive, to generate. So it's to back generate. So regeneration in that context would mean going back to the life it had when it was alive, right? So it can also be translated to be reborn. And in the New Testament, in most cases, that is how it's said. When you take the words apart and you put them next together, there's two words, it's translated the new birth or the rebirth. So, Nic so Nicodemus comes to Jesus, and, G and Jesus says, you must be born again. You must experience the new birth. This, this spiritual thing that you can't explain, right? Jesus says, it's like th the Spirit of God is like the wind. It blows around. You, you can see its effects. You really don't know how it's happening, but it is happening. But if it doesn't happen, nothing happens. You have to experience this thing called the new birth, right? Otherwise, you will remain in the, in the normal state of human beings where when the illumination of God comes, you don't bask in the sunlight and take in the spiritual vitamin D. You scurry away like cockroaches into the darkness because you, you hate the light. You want the, the whole of your life to be like a junior high dance. Let's get the lights as low as possible so we can do what we want. Right? Do you like that one? In John 1, right, God says, because of the Son, right, the Christ, he gave people the power to become children of God. Right? Sometimes it's translated the right. The word is exousia, which is the generic New Testament word for power. It also means right. Like, if you have power, then you have the right to do something, right? But the, but the root of it is this, the ability, the power, the capacity that you couldn't have gotten any other way. Right? In 1 Peter 8.25, he says this, For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. You see, the emphasis in all these passages is the wind blows, like the Spirit just does it. He makes you born again. Here, you were— God put a seed in, and it's an imperishable kind of seed. It's a tree that never rots in the middle. It's like growing a, a brand new thing, right? In, in um, 1st, 2nd Corinthians 5, he says, um, you've become a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. In Ezekiel 36, he says, I'm going to take out the heart of stone, and I'm going to put in a heart of flesh. And in each case, there's this accompaniment of the presence of God himself in the Spirit, right? I'm going to give you a heart of flesh and a new spirit, to sustain you. He says, we've been washed in the rebirth and the presence of the Spirit, both of which are poured out in Christ. So it's a double internal healing. It's like you get a heart transplant and you get something else that is constantly working with that heart to make us willing, right? What does he say? The work of the Spirit is in Ezekiel 36. 
that we would obey his law, and also that we would be willing and careful to obey his commands. Right? That, that, that no longer do we have the attitude of like, Ugh, God wants me to do what? That's so stupid. Uh. Right? And then we do it. Right? That's the worst possible spirituality. Well, not the worst possible. The worst possible is to have the attitude then not do it. Okay? <laughs> Second worst is to have the attitude and then do it. Better is to be like, man, I cannot wait to do the will of God. It is the perfect, beautiful, good will. I'm going to do it. I can't wait to do it. Right? And even if I completely don't understand it, the fun of this is going to be, I'm going to do it, and then in the adventure of doing the good, even when I think it's terrifying, I'm, God is going to work it for good, and I'm going to get to see in the, like, the, the, the drama of the story he's calling me into, like, how he makes it good. And so, why don't you go to the last one there, after this point. So, in Ezekiel 36, you see the exact idea of salvation that you see all through the New Testament. That it starts with God choosing, not us being good. Like, at this point, it would make so much sense for God to just be done with these people. Just bury them in an unmarked grave and start over. You know what I mean? But like, they have been his people all along. They're not going to stop being his people. And even like, there's no reference in Ezekiel 36. Now, all through the New Testament says that there's a condition of faith on salvation. You and I have to believe. But in Ezekiel 36, that's not the point. God's just like, I'm just going to do it. I'm just going to give you a new heart. And then you're going to want to believe. You're going to want to follow me. You're going to want to come with me. I'm just going to do it. There's this election, and there's justification. That is, he, he forgives all their sins. He's like, there's going to be a day when I'm going to wipe out all of your guilt. And then he's going to regenerate. He's going to give them a new heart instead of a heart stone. He's going to give them an indwelling spirit so that the presence of God is always with them, right? Which isn't—when you have a new heart, that's not bad news. You understand? When you have a heart of stone, if God gave you his spirit with a heart of stone, that wouldn't work very well. Because you'd just be constant at war. You'd just be like, shut up, God. You know what I mean? Everything the Spirit would want to say, you'd just be like, I, no, we're not doing that. But when you have you've been given a heart of flesh, and you, be, you become willing again, and then the Spirit comes in and says, okay, here's what we're going to do. Then you're not annoyed at God's presence. You're comforted by it. You're happy to have it. You feel not alone. You feel brave. You feel like it's the greatest gift you could possibly have, rather than the greatest annoyance you could possibly have. And then also Erdom, like he says, he says, look, look, you can't keep me from giving you a destiny. Like all the defiling, all the destroying, all the wrecking, all of that, like I'm still going to give you something great. You're going to be an heir. And at the end, he, at the end it's kind of funny because he says, he says twice in this passage, I'm not doing this for you. Do you understand? I'm not doing it because of you. This isn't for you. And then, you know, he says at the very end of the passage, I'm going to do this for you. Right? Because he wants them to know. We're going to get to this in just a second. He's got a way bigger thing going on than just that. So he's not doing it for them. He's doing it for other reasons. But those reasons are themselves for them also as a smaller part of this wider thing, and it pushes the salvation deeper because when they— he, what's, what's the result of them having a new heart and the Spirit of God and knowing they're going to be heirs and having their own land and experiencing this full salvation? The result of it is, and then you will realize how awful you've been. You'll see, and you'll be so broken by it. You'll be humiliated beyond belief, right? And see, even that is for them. It's for their good. Because nothing will make you happier than humility. 
Nothing will make you happier in the generosity and mercy of another person than the depth of your profound need for it. Not just in terms of your weakness, but your wantonness, the wickedness that they were willing to overlook to care for you. And that humiliation that they find will hold them in memory to pay attention to God enough because what we pay attention to is what shapes us. And you see, if you're drawn into the beauty of what God has done in salvation, the grandeur of it, the depth of it, right? And you're drawn to pay attention to it. And you're a human creature in a body that can't escape that what you pay attention to shapes you, right? Then what will happen over time is God will shape you. And nothing is better than that. Okay. Now, let's go to the second thing really quick. This will be faster. God's salvation is wider than we bargained for. So, so much wider. The first 19 verses of this chapter aren't about the people of Israel. Do you know this? So this, so I, I'm hoping this week you're going to study some of these passages I'm reading to you, especially Ezekiel 36. The first 19 verses of Ezekiel 36 aren't even about Israel. It's about the land. God's message of hope for the, for the physical land of Israel is longer <laughs> than his message of hope for the people of Israel. Because the land of Israel had gotten like a bad shake, man. Right? God said that when he led the people in the land, he was leading them into a land flowing with milk and honey. It was going to be the most beautiful inheritance. He called it the most beautiful of lands. And it was supposed to be an inheritance for them. It was his gift. It was his wedding gift to them, right? It was like, what's the best thing I could possibly give them? A land of their own, right? And he gives it to them, and they just desecrate it for 500 years. And then, after they're done abusing her, and they leave, Edom pounces on her, grabs her, and continues to abuse her, and all the other nations go, yeah, it was the land's fault. It devours its people, and it slaughters its children. So she got blamed for it. So she got abused, handed off to another abuser, and then got blamed for everything that went wrong. Right? And God says, oh, no, 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 no. Oh, no, no, no. This is not how it's going to end. This is not how it's going to be. No, no, you were my gift. And you don't deserve this blame. And I'm going to slaughter Edom for what they've done to you. And I'm going to, when I bring the people back, I'm going to turn you into paradise, the Garden of Eden. And when you, the land, who've been so abused, so scorned, so, so mistreated, so abused, I'm going to make you into such a paradise for these unwilling, ungodly, undeserving people living in you, that you're going to be such a beautiful inheritance that all the nations are going to know that I'm the Lord. Right? He also says that one of the things that, that bothered him so much is that his name had been desecrated. The sacredness had been torn out of it. Mainly, in almost every—he says it five times. He actually says it in kind of a—like, Femi even, like, stumbled over it a little bit because I told him to. Right? There's this place where he says— he says, I'm going to do these things, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you've gone, I will show the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, the name you've profaned among them. Right? Like, you get the repetition here? He's like, listen, you guys, you guys have profaned my holy name everywhere you went. One, just by going there, the people said, oh, look, they got thrown out of God's land. These are God's people that got thrown out of God's land. How good could God be? And then when the people showed up in these other lands, they're morally terrible. Like, there's, remember the sermon where I was like, there's this passage where God says, I'm going to let some of them survive. Not because they're good, but because they're terrible. Because I want you to know when they show up and you meet them, 
and you see how terrible they are as human beings, you'll realize that nothing I did to the people of Israel, I did without cause. That's pretty bad. That's pretty bad, right? And so he's saying, look, everywhere you went, everything you did and everywhere you went, you destroyed my reputation. And one of the things that is the subtext here is if you go back to Genesis when Abraham is called in the first place, when they become a, a Jews, right, like a Hebrew nation, he says to them, You're, I'm, I'm bringing you together so that you will be a nation of priests to all the nations so they would all know that I'm holy, that I'm the king, that I am loving, that, so that all the nations would be drawn to me through you. Instead, what's actually happened is all the nations have been repelled from God because of you, he says. Now think about that for, for us. The same thing is still happening. We're still a nation of priests, the New Testament says. that It's been converted from just the Jews to the believing Jews and all the Gentiles who would believe that. That is the church, all of us, right? And we, we're a nation of priests. Like, we exist in part to receive the inheritance and salvation of God, to bear his name so that his name would be seen as holy, that is sacred rather than desecrated. That's still our calling. That's still part of the wider salvation of God. And so you can see, like, just in this passage, there's four things that, that, that God will not separate. He will not separate them. The beauty of his name, because he is the greatest gift that is to be given to all people. He, he will never back down that his name, that is who he is, is the most important thing. He will not back down on his creation. He made the creation as a gift and an inheritance to the human beings who he called to take dominion over it positively, to have a mutual relationship of delight, so that we can delight in creation and also not desecrate it. And in so doing, in being under God's name and holiness, to receive the inheritance he gives us in creation, and to live it out as the people of God together, the goal is that his name would be sacred to the nations. That all would know what he's really like because of the relationship between God, us, the creation that we inhabit, and how we interact with each other and the nations. And all of that big picture is salvation. And, there, and God, listen to me, God can't be smaller than that. He can't be smaller than that. He can be more minutely attentive than that. So God, in doing, in being that big, he can know you personally. He can know every fear in your heart. He can know every, look, it says in the Bible, every hair on your head. No sparrow falls to the ground that he doesn't know. Every fear in your heart, every anxiety, every hope, every dream, everything you've ever experienced, how you've interpreted it all, what you're concerned about. All, he knows every tiny thing. He is attentive in the most minute detail. But he is as big a person as he can be, and he can't be less than that in his attentiveness to you. So you see, when you pray in such a way as to assume that because God is attentive to your prayers, you can ask him to be your little maidservant to do whatever you want, that he should be a smaller person to love you, he, he's not going to answer that prayer. Do you understand? That's never going to happen. And you'll get frustrated, and then your faith is, right, is going to get wobbly. What he wants to do is to draw you up in faith to be conscious of th how big he is, so that you can see the awe of the, of, the, of the wideness and the depth and the beauty of God's salvation, and so that, you, so that you're, you're praying, and you're like, okay, God, I want to ask you for things, but what can I do for you? Like, how can I get caught up in this thing? How can I be part of how big and wide and— Well, and to quote Ephesians, wide, high, and deep is the love of God as revealed in Christ Jesus, in us, in you— right? God is never going to be smaller than that. I don't, I don't know if you remember, I mean, some of you have had this experience where the main relationship you had with your parents was at home, 
right? And there's some point where when you're like a little kid, you go with your parent to somewhere where they're a bigger deal, where they're like being an adult, right? And you're like, oh, I didn't know mommy did that. You know, like, right? I didn't know. Like, I remember, um, I remember my kids when they were toddlers walking into Lynn Haven Methodist Church when I was pastoring there. And it's like this huge, it's this big church, and, um, and I would get up and speak, and like all these people would come shaking my hand and stuff. And, and Abby was like two and a half years old, and she's just like, like, I didn't know you were a god. I thought you were just my dad. You know, like, she, like, it just like, it just, right? Or like, if you're a kid and you, like, you know your dad's the prime minister, you know, or the president. But then like, you like, you like go to something, you're like, you have a dad who's a general. And you just, he, you like walk by him, he's like inspecting all the troops and walking by all the tanks and stuff. And you're like, it changes your relationship. It doesn't make him less your dad. It doesn't make him care about you less. It doesn't make him less attentive to your needs. It doesn't mean that you don't matter to him. It just means that your relationship changes because you realize that the one that you love and the one who loves you is part of something so much bigger. And if you really want to respect and know and love him back, you have to enter into his bigger world. And then what you find is, is that that expansion does you good. Right? It is, it is good that God won't answer half of our stupid little prayers. That he could never be that small or that he would never do us that kind of harm. Like, that's good. And if you allow yourself to be caught up into this bigger, deeper, and wider thing that is God's salvation, and if you accept his miraculous, merciful, singular regeneration of heart, then he will also give you all the other things that you need. A law, what it means to be good, advice, how is to live so that things would go well with you, a tapping into with the very presence of his spirit to give you power to do the good, and a story that you're part of with all the others who belong to him in a wider story that is a story for the nations which takes in every part of your existence. This is why Jesus the Christ did not say salvation is by you doing what you're told or that salvation will come by how well you take my advice or that salvation will come by how spiritual you are, how open you are to transcendent experiences, interactions, and tapping into's or even how much you consider yourself part of a particular tribe and story. Right? He said salvation comes by faith alone. Why? Because none of that other stuff matters if you don't, if the rotten core of your tree isn't healed. Right? And, and, and the metaphor of choice in Ephesians and Colossians is when we were dead, God made us alive. That is the heart of conversion, of real Christian conversion and salvation. Right? You have to believe you are dead. That is, that your heart is stone. And that you need a completely external, supernatural event where God graciously gives you a new heart, life from death, a new birth, makes you a new creation. And that's what you're asking for when you turn to Christ. You're not asking for advice. You're not coming to a special friend. You're not doing any of that stuff. You're doing some of that stuff too. It's not really the main thing you're doing that's different from any other philosophy, religion, or spirituality. You are asking for the miracle of regeneration. 
you're asking for a heart of flesh instead of a heart of stone. And if you haven't done that, if you haven't experienced it, you need to do it right now. Right? If God, by his Spirit, before regeneration comes to you, creates a mo- even a moment of willingness, you need to grab it. Right? Theologians call that pervening grace, the grace that goes before, that makes us capable of faith. If you experience the capability of faith, you need to grab it, and you need to do it, and you need to believe. And you need to ask God to do that work in you by trusting in Christ, by believing in him that he died for you to make this possible. Does that make sense? And you can do it right now. You can, you can do it in a coffee shop or on your couch. You can, um, you can do it right here in this room. You can, don't even have to say stuff out loud, though it's good to. But, but ultimately, to become a Christian, you must turn to God to receive the supernatural work of regeneration that comes in no other way than by turning to his Christ. By admitting we were wrong, that we are unwilling, wretched, and stone-hearted people, and only his mercy can save us in Christ. And if you do, he will give you the gift only he can give. Some of you have been Christianly religious or otherly religious for years. You have the same heart you've always had. You, if, so, if I told you you weren't a Christian, you'd be angry at me. You'd be like, quit judging me, Pastor Nick. But there isn't, there's no power in you for life. There's no willingness to obey God. You're not excited about the drama of the terror of your suffering and walking the way of the cross in Christ to become like him in his death and so how to attain the resurrection from the dead. Right? You're, you're trying to figure out how much of the world you can lick and still be saved. And that's not what regeneration produces in the heart of human beings who are redeemed. So turn to him for it. For the new heart and the new spirit of God that accompanies him by turning to his Christ, to Jesus, and believing in him. And you'll be part of a deeper and wider salvation than you ever thought. And it will expand you in ways you've never imagined. And it will tie you up and pull you into a drama more exciting than you dare hope for. Let's pray. Lord, I... I pray that you would you'd help us even now to turn to you in faith and in trust that we would open ourselves to this gift that you give that you promise in this passage what you call in Jeremiah just a few pages over the new covenant you would make with your people that you would put their law in their hearts we pray that we'd experience what it says in the New Testament that the love of God would be shed abroad in our hearts that you would you just pour out your love into our hearts that we would that it would be a supernatural action that we would receive and experience I pray that right now that, that we would be turning our hearts to you, that everybody in a certain way would do that, and that some of us would do it for the first time, that we would be believing in you. God, all of us who offer ourselves to you in faith, admit that we have sinned and fallen short of your glory, that we, our throats have been opened graves, and that we deserve the fate of the Israelites, but we ask for the grace of the Israelites to be grafted into your people, to be chosen along with them, as you have offered to all peoples the salvation of Christ. And we pray that you'd help us by giving that salvation to us, and then by filling our hearts with all that you give us in every other facet of how we follow you. Holy Spirit, come and work in us right now as we sing, and also as we celebrate <clears throat> the experience of regeneration in others in baptism. Help us in Jesus' name.